Hello, and welcome to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. Welcome to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. We are here with Professor David Clough. Uh, am I saying your name correctly? That's, that sounds great. Okay, great. Professor of Theological Ethics and author, uh, founder of um, Default Veg, Creature Kind. Very happy to have you here today. Thank you for taking the time to talk. Thanks for having me, Anika. And I'd like to get started first. Um, you're a professor of theological ethics, so I'd like to first just even hear what is this field all about? Yeah, so all ethics um, has a starting point, uh, you know, arises from a particular tradition of inquiry. And so theological ethics is questions about asking uh, uh, about right and wrong, good and evil from um, a perspective informed by the Christian tradition. So, uh, you know, it stands in a you know, two millennia or, uh, long uh, traditions of Christian thinking about if we believe these kinds of things, if we're committed to this kind of uh, beliefs about God and the world, what does that mean for how we live? And so Christian ethics is that question in, in, uh, in relation to you know, contemporary challenges, uh, given the kinds of stuff that Christian believed, Christians believe, what does that mean for how we respond to all kinds of different ethical questions? And one thing I didn't address yet, but you are based in Chester, so that's where uh, you teach and work, Chester, UK. That's right, in the northwest of England, yeah. And so, obviously, one reason we are sitting here today is because your work also ties in heavily with animal ethics. So what is the intersection of the theological um, realm and the animal ethics issues you work to, and how did you come to this work also? Yeah, so... um... I've been vegetarian um, and then vegan since I was about 18, um, and it always seemed to me, so I was raised in in the church, in the Methodist church in Britain, and it always seemed to me uh, to be, uh, well, as soon as I started thinking about it, it seemed to me a, a, an obvious issue that we ought to be concerned about the animals that we're raising uh, for food, especially, and if we've got a choice between uh, causing um, suffering and death of animals and not through our dietary choices. That seemed to me an, an obvious choice, but I was really struck both as I made that choice and then in the decades that followed that relatively few fellow Christians uh, interpreted uh, uh, Christian understandings of uh, our relationships with fellow creatures in the same way as I did to to sort of think that um, vegetarian veganism was um, a desirable uh, moral choice. And so um, after I got through um, my uh, studies in theological ethics um, at uh, postgraduate tour and doctoral level, one of the issues it seemed to me would be really good to pick up was asking the question of how, how did I construe the relationship between Christianity and concern for animals and um, you know, trying to set out as, in a as careful a, a way as I could about why I thought fellow Christians ought to be interested in that connection too. Um, once you open the question, it seems to me it's abundantly clear that Christians have got really good reasons for being concerned about the lives of fellow animal creatures. Christians believe in a God who is the God of all of those creatures, delights in their flourishing, wills their, um, uh, you know, their, their pr pr productive life. Christian scriptures talk about the whole of creation responding to God's grace uh, in praise. 
Um, so Christians have got really strong reasons for uh, having a basis of, uh, of valuing and being concerned for other animals. Um, but um, it's often been the case that Christians haven't been at the forefront of uh, pushing uh, concern for animals, especially in the 20th century. That it's, It was interesting to me in the 19th century in Britain, Christians were leading the way in uh, advocating for anti-cruelty legislation for animals and anti-mounting uh, campaigns against vivisection. But it's been um, less frequent and Christians have been less obvious in the animals movement, I think, since then. Why do you think that is? It's interesting. I think there's a range of possible uh, reasons. Um, so you've got, first of all, um, I mean, secularization is a complex phenomenon, but you've definitely got the kinds of animals movements which were set up in the 19th century with Christian, explicitly Christian roots. Um, um, in the 20th century, as they sought to diversify their audience, I think they down, started to downplay their Christian ethos in, in, in order to reach a larger uh, second growing secular audience. I think um, there were also, I mean, there was some progress made. So in terms of the urgency of the perceived urgency of the issue, I think that shifted over time as some of the most egregious cruelties were uh, outlawed. Um, and vivisection uh, was brought under some kind of regulation, though you know it wasn't anything like the kind of regulation that the campaigners wanted at the end of the 19th century. And then I think at the beginning of the 20th century, there were also obviously really pressing human issues um, around you know the First World War and so on. Um, and so I think maybe some Christians who were seeing animals as a priority concern in the 19th century uh, maybe were thinking uh, that some human justice issues were more pressing in the in the early 20th. Right. <clears throat> well, I've just myself this year started really exploring issues of different faiths and animal advocacy. Um, so this this talk will also be part of a series I started at Pacific Roots magazine called Faith, Sustainability and Stewardship, where mm -hmm. I'm communicating with people of different faiths. So as I understand, though, your work is fairly cutting edge then, because this is sort of a burgeoning field, um, I think attracting more and more interest now with a kind of the paradigm shift occurring, but the work you do um, can be seen as sort of pioneering. So it was definitely, when I picked up the quest, the sort of interface of Christianity Animals, um, should be about 12 years ago or so now, um, that was an unusual, um, fairly eccentric, marginal academic mm -hmm. interest. Um, I mean, there were one or two people who had been, who'd done important work uh, previously, but that hadn't managed to capture sort of mainstream academic attention. And so, but what's been really encouraging in the last decade is to see lots of uh, increasing interest in the field. So um, I've just finished uh, a six year term as co-chair of the Animals and Religion Group at the American Academy of Religion. And just in my term there, uh, the growing interest in uh, from scholars in, in religion um, in a sort of animals question has been really striking and I'm increasingly asked to you know examine PhDs um, you know peer review new books in the field you know it's a, you get a real real sense of momentum in terms of a growing interest which is great to see. It's really wonderful and then so you're in academia so then you're also seeing the surge of interest from younger generations. Yeah definitely yeah and really keen to find ways to resource and support um, 
uh, uh, the sort of next generation of scholarship uh, in this field at the interface between you know really theoretically interesting academic work and social activism i think that the, the space at the, at the intersection of those two things is is a really interesting one i looked up your books i had known about a couple of your books before we talked but just before we got on the call i, I looked up your books you have several books correct mm -hmm. um, you have just can you just name a couple you have a couple that ref, that um, deal explicitly with animal issues yeah the the one that i the project i've just con uh, completed um, after sort of a, about a decade is a two-volume monograph called On Animals. Um, and the first volume of that asks where, about where animals belong in Christian theology. And the second volume says, what does that mean for Christian theological ethics, the way Christians treat animals? And so it surveys what we're doing to animals in all kinds of ways, using them for food, for textiles, for labor, for research experimentation, for sport and entertainment as companion animals and our impacts on wild animals and says, OK, what does a, a Christian understanding of ethical responsibility in, in relation to fellow creatures mean for how we think about our use of animals in those ways? Um, so that's, I think, um, uh, you know, people have been uh, saying is uh, a really valuable new sort of benchmark for thinking in a Christian way about animals. Um, but previously, I'd also co-edited a couple of uh, books, Creaturely Theology and um, Animals as Religious Subjects, uh, which brought together a range of authors um, engaging animals and religion in different ways. I look forward to reading those. Are they are they fairly accessible? Or are they are, are academic texts? Um, I mean, they're all primarily aimed at an academic audience, um, but I have had people who are not academics pick them up and say, right. oh, "This is this is actually quite readable, David." So um, I'd encourage people to give it a try. Absolutely. No, I'll be. I I'm not in academia right now, and I'm still. I was just curious. Um, and I know actually several people who are not in academia who will be interested also. So I was just curious. Uh, so Creature Kind, we featured earlier this year, we uh, featured an interview with Sarah, your co-founder um, at Pacific Roots Magazine. So I could link to that when I post this. But um, so I wanted to talk to you, of course, about your role with Creature Kind and how uh, the mission, how it's developed since found. So Creature Kind um, started about five years ago, and as I got towards the towards the end of this um, two-volume academic monograph project, I began to think, well, what steps could I take to enable this message to get out beyond the academic community? And I was really lucky at that point to bump into Sarah Withrow King, uh, and basically we discovered fairly quickly we had sort of very similar goals about how could we engage uh, Christians at large with the question of uh, where animals belong in relation to Christian faith and ethics. And, but we also importantly had complementary skills. I knew that I, as an academic, um, you know, I had a lot of detailed knowledge and some ability to communicate about it, but I certainly had no experience setting up an organization, running campaigns, producing uh, web resources, social media uh, stuff. Sarah had done a lot of that work in her previous roles. And so, uh, what really accelerated uh, Creature Kind was uh, this sense of, um, you know, bringing strongly complementary uh, skills to a common project. Um, and since and so fairly early on, we identified um, uh, sort of three key roles that Creature Kind could play. First of all, 
working with institutions, churches and Christian organizations like seminaries and church founded universities to say, um, do you agree with us that uh, Christians have got reasons for caring about animals? And if so, could we help you with thinking about what policy, practical policy uh, changes might uh, follow from that? Um, and focusing uh, particularly with catering policy and also in curriculum in relation to educational institutions. So we spent quite a lot of time um, in conversation with a whole range of different kinds of uh, uh, organizations on that kind of policy work. Um, second, we've been really keen to develop new educational resources. So we've got a great six week uh, course on Christianity animals that churches and other uh, Christian small groups uh, could follow, which we've had lots of uh, great feedback about. And we've got a really active blog and you know other supporting educational resources, which we hope will be really useful for people who are interested in uh, thinking more about the relationship between Christianity and animals. And then we've also been uh, putting energy into helping to resource the growth of Christian community around Christianity and animals. So we've got um, monthly uh, uh, webinar calls now for Christian animal advocates and for Christian pastors and those in uh, uh, different leadership roles who are interested in um, helping to introduce people there uh, in touch with uh, to the topic of Christianity and animals and We've also experimented with running uh, retreats and uh, uh, some social media uh, groups to it's a lot of Christians, I think, who get the issue, but uh, feel quite isolated within their particular worshipping communities. And so we feel a strong need to want to sort of build up ad, uh, Christian animal advocates and, and give them uh, support and share wisdom about good ways to uh, lift up those questions. So those three areas um, have been ones that we've worked on consistently over the past uh, five years and it's been re re really exciting uh, year for us this year. We've just incorporated formally as a non-profit in the United States for the first time after working in partnership with um, Eastern University in Philadelphia and Farm Forward, which is an existing um, non-profit. Um, and, you know, we're, we're growing a staff team and this um, uh, student fellowship program is a good example of how we're sort of building out to try and reach uh, new audiences uh, with this question about how Christianity engages uh, animal issues. Seems very exciting. <laughs> really exciting. No, As we were discussing before the talk, I mean, I have this series, but I don't, I don't identify as Christian. But every time I'm reading about creature, creature kind, I'm sharing the content. It's wonderful mm -hmm. content. I love the way you guys are doing your media and then hearing about this sort of the three goals we have too. It's just incredibly rich. It's really exciting. Um, and then also you have default veg. Yeah, so that was kind of spin-off from Creature Kind. I was aware in a few contexts where I was working um, of having experimented with um, a particular catering policy. So I was president of a small academic society called the Society of the Study of Christian Ethics in the UK. Um, and we were running a conference on animals for the first time. And in conversation with the secretary, I was thinking, well, what are we going to do about the catering for this uh, conference? Uh, and together we had the idea of, well, what if we just switched the default? So the default had been, uh, you know, meat was served, but it, and if you wanted a vegetarian or vegan diet, you had to make a special request. Uh, we had the idea, well, what if we just switch that default? Uh, we'll make uh, vegetarian uh, vegan options the default. And if people want to eat meat, they can uh, tick a box on registration. And what we found 
is that it massively impacted the amount of meat that got consumed at the conference um, with um, minimal uh, concern because anyone who was concerned about what they were eating could still uh, tick the box. And I even saw myself in the lunch queue next to one of the very few people who had ticked the meat box um, who liked the look of the vegetarian option and chose that. Anyway, and anyway, so since then, um, I thought, well, here's a really interesting model of a potentially quite a big impact on uh, volume of meat consumption, which is a really significant uh, issue, um, both for farmed animals, for wild animals, for the environment and for human well-being. We need to reduce consumption of animals. Um, so here's a, a simple initiative uh, that could make a, a really big difference. And I quickly realized that that um, idea didn't have anything specifically to do either with an academic context or a Christian audience. Yeah. And so in a sense, it, it needed to reach a bigger audience than CreatureKind. You know, CreatureKind's focus is uh, specifically working with uh, Christian organizations. And so I was really glad to partner with the Vegetarian Society in the UK and the Better Food Foundation in the uh, United States, who immediately saw the value of uh, that idea and were keen to uh, promote it. And so we've uh, now got a you know good three-way partnership between CreatureKind, Better Food Foundation and um, Vegetarian Society's UK Food Plan uh, to uh, push that uh, simple idea and it's it's great because it's really it's really straightforward you know uh, lots of organizations could just make that switch really quickly um, it's um, it's one sustainability initiative that is cost free or even cost positive mm -hmm. um, because people could save money even, you know, possibly by uh, switching to more to plant based meals uh, by default. And there's been some really interesting peer reviewed academic research recently, which has demonstrated in different uh, contexts the um, reduction of consumption of animal products might be up to 80% with virtually no uh, triggering of sort of defensive resistance, you know, so so Meat Free Mondays has been a really interesting initiative, but in some places where it's been introduced, people have been concerned that they're having choice taken away uh, in a problematic way. And so default veg is interesting because it achieves a really significant reduction while allowing everyone to choose what they want to eat. And so we think there's a lot of potential um, for uh, all kinds of organizations thinking about that simple switch. So yes, which, it, I mean, it shifts the norm, but still provides, um, still allows for people to have choice, right? And so you work with organizations to help um, shift their menus. I mean, this all was born from a catering mindset. Yep, so um, the that's, the sort of growth in the UK has been in relation to um, other academic societies that have taken this this on and used it to run their conferences. Um, and then academic units like uh, different departments and faculties in a number of universities have now sort of adopted this as uh, policy. We're hoping that some universities might decide to um, adopt this fairly soon as a um, uh, you know, for a, across the institution as a as a catering policy, and then we're in touch with lots of different um, companies and organisations about um, uh, about making this kind of shift. And I think I think some rapid changes are uh, are possible. There are some airlines that have already shifted to default vegetarian uh, yeah. catering. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I think there there could I think we're in really interesting tipping point uh, now where we could see change quite rapidly. 
and and there's also a lot of interest but what sometimes is needed is just the expertise of how how do you do it right um and many of us who are predominantly plant-based or vegan there was a time when we had to learn ourselves maybe how to make this shift i mean you well you learned quite young 18 were you one of the few people in your circle that was <laughs> pretty much yeah i mean i wasn't i wasn't alone but it definitely was not um uh, it was not was not a common thing to, right. to be doing at, at, at that point um uh yeah and for but for me i um for me i think it was just in my teenage years gradually being introduced to the realities behind some of our treatment of animals and just feeling that very deeply that there was that, that, that there was a problem right you live in the uk where there seems to be rapid shift um like rapid um a growing interest in, of course, vegan products, this and that, but veganism as a whole, plant-based uh, eating. I don't, I don't know if the correlation on a national scale is also connected to um, animal, an animal rights concern. It isn't. There isn't always an explicit link. Sometimes people come to it from other um, areas. But what do you, what do you think, looking at the where you live mm -hmm. as a whole? Is it, is it often interconnected? So yes, I think the connections are always there. The, the, I mean, the, the, the change just in the last three, four years in the UK is really remarkable. So lots of companies finding that they can create vegan versions of products. So the Greg sausage roll was a sort of key thing. Greg's is a, a kind of a, ba a small bakery, uh, well, a, a big chain of small bakery stores um, in uh, the UK um, selling, you know, fairly cheap food. They uh, and sausage rolls was their big spender. They uh, big big seller. They created a vegan version, and that was massive in terms of even all, even the overall profits for the company. In you know since they introduced it, and as a result, lots of other companies have been um, following that. And the I think there's been an increase of vegan sales of vegan products in the UK by about three four hundred percent in the last uh, three four years. Um, really interestingly, I think most of those products are not being bought by vegans. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and there's an increasing number of, you know, it's quite a large proportion of the UK population who now report in surveys that they're reducing, they're trying to reduce their consumption of animal products in different ways, um, which I think is is really, really encouraging. I think if you ask those people why they are increasing their consumption of plant-based foods, the um, the first answer people will give is health and the second is environment and animals will be kind of third or lower um, right. and i think uh, i think so i i think there are different lessons to be learned there one is it's really encouraging that health messages and environmental messages are pushing in the same direction in relation to consumption of animals but the second thing for me is that um people who recognize the particular issues in relation to our use of animals ought to be working to keep animals in the mix in relation to those questions. So I don't think we can afford to just throw our lot in with uh, sort of climate-based reasons for being concerned about consumption of animals, because there are some, you know, most of the time, um, things that are good for the environment are going to be good for farmed animals too. Right. But there are some sort of trade-offs, say, if we moved from broiler chicken production to free range chicken production, the carbon intensity of that is probably higher. And so I think animals people need to be in the room to say there are some, um, uh, uh, you know, 
climate trade-offs we shouldn't, you know, climate advances that we shouldn't be going for because of the problematic impacts on animals. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the reasons I'm so enthusiastic about the overall message of reducing consumption, because that's a really clear win-win-win-win for farmed animals, wild animals, the environment, and uh, human health and well-being. <clears throat> right. Uh, on that note, at a webinar I recently watched featuring you, I'll get to that in a moment, but I have a quote I actually wrote down. I was taking copious notes. Uh, it was a fantastic presentation, and you shared something that ties into everything you just spoke about. And I want to preface this by saying I've really had to meditate um, about how to include the sort of reducitarian message um, at my platform, Pacific Roots Magazine, because I do think it's important. Um, even as a vegan who is primarily whole foods plant-based, I realize most people are not going to make that shift overnight necessarily in their lifetime. So how can we create impact and influence and sort of be inclusive um, to people who want to make changes but are not, you know, shifting all the way to that to that stance. Mm -hmm. So you, in that webinar, you spoke about, um, you reflected on um, two pig farms, I believe you visited, one industrialized, if you, if you are willing to share that, because I thought that was really striking, your memories of mm -hmm. the contrast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it's quite hard to get to visit um, industrial sites of industrial animal agriculture. Um, and so one um, place that I hadn't been able to get access to before was um, an intensive pig farm. And so um, a year last December was uh, the first chance I got to do that. And I found it really shocking. Um, it felt in some ways like sort of entering a uh, some kind of you know medieval dungeon it was it was um, you know the the pigs were um, in relatively uh, uh, small spaces uh, um, sort of 30 or so pigs in fairly small pens with you know so little space that they were sort of um, sort of jumping on on top of each other um, uh, because there was almost not enough space for them all to be you know stood up together at the same time um, EU legislation requires um, environmental enrichment, even for intensively farmed pigs, but that was being supposedly satisfied in the place that we were being shown round by you know, a small piece of wood on a chain on one side of the enclosure. So one pig at a time might have the opportunity to chew on a piece of wood was the sole piece of environmental uh, uh, enrichment um, that was being used there. And, and so I think so I was I was really shocked uh, by that and came away, you know, really um, saddened um, about you know just my sense of what that meant for the probably 1.5 billion of pigs, most of whom are being kept in 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 those kinds of conditions. Uh, then a few months later, I got to see one of the bigger organic pig farms in the UK, um, and here uh, pigs were being. Um, uh, raised in um they had plenty of space on a sort of on a, a sunny hillside on the day we were visiting they had um uh, wallows where they could um cool themselves off in the in water and in the mud they got to root in the earth which you know studies show you know uh pigs given access to parkland spend more more than half their time rooting in the earth that's uh, one of the ways uh, to be a pig the piglets were getting to suckle from uh, their mothers for you know a long period without any of the sow crates that are being used in intensive uh systems and i 
my, my, my sort of affect um, looking around that site after having been to uh, the other one was a sort of I felt myself taking a deep breath, uh, you know, and feeling a real relief that the, the lives that these pigs were getting to experience were unrecognizably different uh, from the ones that I'd seen their fellows in the uh, intensive systems. And I don't mean to say that resolves all of the, you know, so I'm, I'm vegan, um, uh, I'm, I'm still uh, vegan. Uh, it doesn't resolve all the questions in relation to our use of animals. And I absolutely recognize the arguments that any form of uh, domestication is problematic in relation to animals in, in certain ways. But I think as as vegans who are trying to influence a bigger conversation, I think we need to be prepared to make distinctions. And I think we need to recognize that, you know, although those piglets are being taken from that organic free range farm at six months old and being slaughtered, I think we need to recognize that the respect that's evident uh, for uh, the ability of animals to enjoy a good life in that free range organic uh, facility is um, uh, you know, qualitatively different from the intensive systems that most pigs are being uh, raised in. And so um, I'm in the unusual position of, you know, being a vegan who wants to be in conversation with high welfare farmers, would like to be, you know, while we're reducing, because I'm not expecting everyone to go vegan overnight either. And, um, you know, I think the best we can hope for is, you know, a reduction in consump overall consumption. And within that reduction um moving to uh, higher welfare farming for the reducing numbers of animals that we're consuming and so um i'm in an unusual position of being a vegan who would like to expand the market of the high you know very highest welfare uh animal farmers uh, that i uh, meet uh, and i think that's really important too for helping a whole society to imagine what kind of uh, you know kind of transition that we need so we need to be bringing people in rural communities along uh, along with us on the sense of uh, thinking about ways of transition you know we need you know we need a massive transition of our animal agriculture industry um, but we need to find ways to help people imagine the uh, transition and and so not just be resistant in that mode and so I'd really instead of vegans and high welfare farmers getting into a big fight and lobbing you know brickbats at each other i think we ought to be making a common cause against um you know industrialized uh, practices as a sort of intermediate step at least uh to improving things for animals right i'm absolutely with you i <clears throat> i feel i've grown in the time since i've become vegan to be more where you're at where it's what i want to be in dialogue uh because i'm aware that um, shutting the door if people are not willing to make that change immediately, um, at least be aware of this difference that you saw so strikingly and and have the power to say as consumers we don't want we don't want the intensive animal agriculture. It's extremely damaging to everybody involved. the the workers, right? I mean, many people, vegans included, don't even think about the plight of workers, the mm -hmm. mental state. Um, of the workers, of course, environment, the animals themselves, and then, then the consumer. I, if I were a meat eater, I wouldn't want to eat that meat. It's um, coming from a place of trauma too. So, mm -hmm. um, and I do feel both you and I probably are in an unusual place to also understand the vegan side, which would say all all of these animals are coming from a place of trauma because it's it's, it's slaughter. Obviously, uh, to speak very plainly about it. I recognized that when I was a meat eater, I wasn't a hunter, you know, I, I didn't kill my own food. So 
uh, I was not really familiar with the language of slaughter. And I think this is also a disconnect for the average consumer. And it's not to blame the consumer. It's how our societies are set up, right? We're not, most of us are not out hunting our food, foraging, um, some are. But so there's a disconnect, and I love to really examine the spectrum from the responsibility of the consumer and the power we have to also the producer side of things and um, making that decision, which it's interesting. We're talking now during a global pandemic, uh, so maybe some of these issues are definitely, while well, I am seeing a lot more media about these issues, which maybe we could go now to that really wonderful webinar you hosted. Honestly, is one of the best presentations I've ever seen. Thank you. <laughs> so congratulations. It was really very interesting. The Animals, Ethics, and Climate Crisis Talk hosted by Farm Forward, correct? Yeah. So what, what uh, maybe we could talk about the background of that. What sparked that? How did that, um, and, and was, it was it planned to be a webinar or was it planned to be a sort of a, presentation to an audience and then it shifted to a webinar or how, how did that develop? Yeah, so for a number of years, Farm Forward have been doing a, what they call a virtual classroom visit with uh, Jonathan Safran Foer. Uh, so the founder of Farm Forward, Aaron Gross, who's a good friend of mine, co-wrote um, Jonathan Safran Foer's Eating Animals. Um, and they Jonathan's been really enthusiastic about helping um, continue to sort of leverage uh, the impact of that book. And so Farm Forward has been regularly hosting uh, what they call virtu virtual classroom visits where Jonathan, people can sign up for this sort of virtual webinar and, uh, and get to hear from Jonathan and uh, ask him some questions. And so as we sort of discuss sort of growing interest in the in, in my work on Christianity and, and animals, we began to think think of whether or not it's possible to experiment with a similar format in uh, relation to thinking uh, about some of these more general issues in in my work. So that was so the model was always going to be virtual, but it just fits very well in a time of um, um, pandemic. Um, so that yeah, that was great. We had um, a lot of interest. We were advertising it in, on a fairly limited time scale, but we had 600 people uh, registering interest uh, to join the webinars and um yeah the feedback we've had uh since then has been uh really encouraging so i think it's definitely something uh worth trying again i hope so yeah again i thought it was um i've been i think many of us especially who love information and learning and meeting um we've been taking part in several webinars during this period it's a really interesting time but this one was really i thought it was fantastically prepared i could have listened to you for much longer i'm sure other people have been saying that they're it felt like you presented everything so richly, but that that you knew the as a listener and as a um, watching, there was so much more that could could be discussed. Also, so mm -hmm. if you don't mind, I have some notes from that um, mm -hmm. time. So of course that it was relevant that you hosted that and you presented that during a global pandemic. So, what are your sort of thoughts about um, how this chapter is influencing our awareness of our relationship to animals yeah i think big picture this is analogous to the climate crisis in the sense of giving us um uh the shock of realizing that there may be some really hard limits uh to our exploitation of the non-human creation 
which um, are liable to have strong um, negative feedback effects on the sustainability of life for us and fellow creatures in anything like the the, the way we know it. And so, um, so that so that I think is a really important um, piece um, that um, I'm encouraged to see already is beginning to get cracked traction in sort of mainstream uh, media. I mean, it's, so again, going back to our question about sort of strategy and animal advocacy, I've, um, obviously there are there are fairly crass ways in which um, some vegans have been ignoring some of the um, pressing human emergency uh, issues and just saying, oh, well, this just shows I was right all the time kind of thing. And I so think we need to be really, really careful uh, to, to avoid that. Yeah. Um, but um, I do think in the right way, uh, we've got a global audience now who are ready to begin to hear some of the linkages between our uh, maltreatment of animals and the kind of uh, consequences that um, the awful uh, consequences that we're experiencing all over the world uh, at the moment and realizing that um, returning to business as usual is not anything that I, th I think a lot of people are enthusiastic uh, about because we recognize that um, th that's likely to be continuing the models that have created uh, the mess that, that got us into this uh, situation and the the there's there's a there's you know sort of one strand of response to that which is has the danger of uh, being uh, sort of xenophobic and racist, which is these awful Chinese people doing these nasty things to wild animals in these wet markets. And if we shut that down, we'll sort it all out. Um, but I'm what I'm most encouraged by is that um, I'm seeing quite a lot of journalists who haven't written a lot about this stuff before, who are saying, actually, it's not just about them. And industrialized animal agriculture as such is uh, part of the causal nexus that that displaces people from small scale, um, uh, low intensity uh, agriculture, forces them into proximity with these disrupted wild animal populations, forces them to try and make a living from these uh, wild animals. And so that looks like a really plausible um, uh, sort of causal chain that led to COVID-19. But industrialized animal agriculture is much more directly implicated in other uh, viral pandemics where it's the large populations of unhealthy animals that are genetically similar, immunocompromised, um, that are ideal breeding grounds for um, uh, viral uh, uh, pandemics. Um, and also the, the issue that um, has been you know, widely recognized, but no one is acting on at the moment is potentially even greater, the idea that the force feeding of antibiotics to in intensively farmed animals, which is necessary to allow them to be healthy in these massively overcrowded situations, th that's contributing to um, you know, a serious issue about growth, growth of antibiotic resistance, which could make you know, the kind of um, mortality figures that we've seen with COVID-19 uh, seem uh, you know, really small. If we lose the if we lose the ability to use antibiotics to treat basic um, bacterial infections, which is you know substantially, um, you know, the, the risk of which is being substantially increasing by feeding massive amounts of antibiotics to inten intensively farmed animals. Um, you know, that, that's a that's a really big deal. So I mentioned in the webinar about eighty percent of antibiotics in the U.S. are currently being fed to farmed animals rather than being used for human consumption. 
Um, in China, last resort, you know, antibiotics that are la- that kept as last resort antibiotics when everything else has failed in uh, many countries are being fed to farmed animals. Um, and a few years ago, my daughter had a serious bacterial infection that was uh, life threatening. It was a real issue about whether or not antibi- uh, the right antibiotics could be found to treat um, her infection. And so I just have a really strong sense of what it's going to be like. Um, if we don't reverse uh, our, our current pattern of um, you know, wasting uh, the efficacy of antibiotics through um, supporting industrial an- animal agriculture. Yeah, I don't want to be gloomy, but realistically speaking, it's actually terrifying, this issue with the antibiotics. It's come up in previous podcasts I've had um, in the recent time. And um, I think, again, awareness, this is not something you're seeing addressed on the news regularly, and it should be. The fact, yeah, in America, 80% of antibiotics going to farm animals and the antibiotic resistance. I've already heard about uh, some of the really scary things that it, um, it's it's um, creating and and right the things we're seeing right now this unprecedented chapter of you know so many countries in lockdown and um, all these restrictions coming from covid and as you mentioned the numbers that we could stand to see if uh when it's not really a question of if but when because if industrial animal agriculture goes on unchecked it's not a question of if but when so um the time yeah the time really is now so I really appreciated you bringing up earlier that there's um, definitely some 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 camps that are being very crass about their response to this. I've seen that too, but I've really been thoughtful. I thought about writing an essay about that um, because I feel like, and also what we're seeing with uh, environment, you know, now that humans are staying put and our activity is um, so decreased, and some of the so-called benefits we're seeing i mean speaking from a also spiritual perspective and all creatures perspective it's kind of it's i can't help but also being happy for animals who it's like a a breath of just you know instead of relentless human activity pursuing you know um exploitation of ecosystems or you know just our busy everyday activity which we're so used to um, I feel like there's a way to address all of this without, yeah, without being crass and with also addressing the gravitas of the situation with, with humans. Um, it's, it's very, it's very complex, maybe the, the way to address it, but, um, I'm sure some journalists have and some writers have found a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so during the talk, you also addressed and I think that also ties in with this chapter so intensely. Um, do we have time for animal ethics? And as a as an advocate, also I think this is interesting because I think many people who aren't interested in animal advocacy that that's that's the whole question. How can we possibly have time for animal ethics? Let's look at what's going on with humans. So I I really appreciated your very intelligent and also down-to-earth way to um, describe how how indeed we do have time for animal ethics. You you listed three points, the urgency, our ability to multitask, and of course, interconnectedness. Yeah, yeah and I, I think, um, so I, 
I, I talk a lot to um, audiences who are not already convinced that um, animals are worthy of our attention. And I think it's really, really important to start with this question about what what makes me think that animals are, are worth our time when we're confronting you know, major intra-human social justice issues. Um, and I, I think the animals movement has been um, problematically um, uh, uh, blinkered in relation to um, focusing on a, on a sort of single issue without attention to these wider intersections. And that's been, I mean, it's both problematic because we should be concerned about um, justice to, to human neighbors uh, too, but it's also um, limits the effectiveness of the campaign because if there are lots of people who um, are energetically working uh, on human social justice issues and we're not able to open a conversation about how these things connect, um, but instead they just hear us say, never mind about the human questions, um, you know, we want to get you concerned about animals, then I think we're kind of burning a whole range of bridges that are absolutely crucial for the for the for the broader uh, movement. And so, starting with the question about have we got time for animals, I think is a appropriate thing to do because there are really good answers, you know, to, to the question. It is urgent. We can do more than one thing at a time, and these issues do turn out to be very strongly connected, as we're seeing in relation to climate crisis and the sort of global uh, pandemic. So, you know, thinking about one issue is just a really bad way to think about anything thing um, so that we need to be attentive to all these con connections but as we make the case for why we should be concerned for animals it's really crucial that we help uh, that we help people to recognize that we're up for being in coalition with them about the things they care about because we recognize their connection to the animal stuff you know when when um, you know migrant uh, uh, black, Latino, uh, Latinx workers are being exploited in um, uh, slaughterhouses. You know, it's both the humans and the animals that are having a, a terrible time. And in, in most of the contexts of animal oppression, that's that's the case. Humans uh, humans and other animals are, are, are do badly uh, when animals are badly treated. And so there's lots of really important coalition building uh, to be done there, but only if we're able to uh, signal a firm and show that we care about the things that other people care about most too. Right. How is it that you end up talking to a lot of audiences who are not already convinced that animals are worthy of attention? Um, I think, uh, so if my, my uh, you know, primary, the people I'm primarily trying to reach are people who um, are Christian or have sort of some interested in in Christian understandings and um, animals has not been, as we've said, a priority uh, and prominent issue uh, for uh, many groups. And so a lot of the time, both in academic and uh, church contexts, um, I'm drawing an audience uh, that have, you know, are interested in the way Christianity relates to contemporary ethical questions, but probably haven't been to a presentation about Christianity and animals before. Um, and so I'm really glad to be able to find spaces where I'm able to engage people who who haven't thought about these things before. I mean, there, there's, I'm, you know, I'm very enthusiastic about our work of kind of educating and engaging and enthusing, you know, people who already get the issue, but the, the way of trying to find what um, modes of communication that might reach new audiences, um, I think is really important. And Christians, um, um, in particular, I think have not been well reached by the predominantly secular animal uh, groups um, 
uh, that are most active at the moment. Um, some of them have been convinced by people like Peter Singer that Christianity is uh, the chief cause of the ideological, chief ideological sort of cause of the oppression of animals, which I don't think is a very good um, uh, analysis. And a lot of people just don't have enough understanding of the religious context in order to plausibly address people who stand within religious uh, traditions. And so one of the things I'm most glad about in the work of Creaturekind is that we can be recognized as you know, authentic insiders in, in Christian uh, faith traditions and be talking to fellow Christians about this stuff rather than Christians feeling like they're being shouted at from a sort of great distance by people who don't really understand uh, the way that they think and, and what they believe. It's so essential. That's that's really it's so fascinating and also just incredibly practical. Yeah, the work you're doing. So I want to thank you so much. When I post this, I'll be sharing all the links for also Creature Kind, Default Veg. <clears throat> I look forward to continuing to follow Creature Kind, all of it on Instagram. Also, you have all the social media profiles for Creature Kind, Creature Kind, and Default Veg. It's really great, great streams of media, and you guys are very connective. I look forward to future webinars also. And, and thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Anika. It's been really good. Thank you for listening to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. Visit us online at pacificrootsmagazine.com.